We will be continuing in our exposition of the Gospel of John today. Last Sunday we looked at Jesus' terrifying warning to the religious leaders and Jewish people. If they continue to reject Him as their Messiah, they would one day find themselves permanently barred from heaven and barred from His presence, from the Lord's presence, basically cast down into Hades and then hell. They would find themselves seeking the Lord, like for the first time, but unable to find Him. We left off at chapter 7, verse 36. This morning we're going to jump forward and look at the story of the woman caught in adultery. So you guys can take your Bibles and turn over to John 7. We're going to see that text in verse, chapter 7, verse 53, and we're going to run all the way through into 8 and wrap up at 11. So 7.53 to 8.11. Now, I want you to notice something about that text. Do you see how it has double bars at the beginning and end of it? Does everyone's Bible have double bars before the, at the beginning and the end? Okay. You don't see that very often in the Bible, but on occasion you do. And we do uh, see a passage over in, I believe, Mark, at the end of Mark chapter 16. And what those bars signify is that the translators that have taken that, taken that text and translated it into English, the translators have flagged that section. Those bars indicate kind of a red flag. Um, like the text is questionable. And I think primarily the reason why this text is flagged is because it appears in some of the early manuscripts, but not the earliest manuscripts. So you've got different manuscripts that were written for century, slightly after that or whatever. You've got different manuscripts, biblical manuscripts that were written and you have some of the earliest ones, which were first century, and then you've got some that came slightly after that or whatever. So you've got earliest, and you've got early, and then you've got some that even came later. So this text has been flagged because it appears not in the earliest, but in the early ones. And it's an interesting thing because we don't even have access to the earliest ones anymore. And in any bit that we do have access, these are just simple fragments of it, because you're talking about documents that are 2,000 years old. They were written on, you know, Cyprus, uh, papyra, uh, papyra, you know, paper or whatever. They just, papyra, is that a right word? Did I say that right? Papyrus. Thank you. Uh, papyra. I'm thinking, uh, never mind. I just, papyrus. They're written on papyrus or some other material, and uh, these things just haven't been preserved or been destroyed somehow. So anyways, this text is, is flagged because it's not, it's not seen in, or it's not recognized as being in the earliest. Now, this has caused, obviously, some folks to question its origin, to question its veracity, to question its authenticity. And some have, have gone as far throughout the centuries to mark it as spurious, which would mean not legit, basically. And when I, when I read little notes about it being spurious and, and, and people being unwilling to accept it and to receive it and see it as Scripture, I, it just kind of blows my mind. I, I believe if this section was actually spurious, if it wasn't cohesive with the rest of Scripture or if it wasn't Scripture itself, I, I can't imagine that God would have allowed the text to make it through the canonization process that happened in the mid-fourth century. Canon, canonization means that um, the, the books of the Bible were already arranged, but they were, they were accepted and given a stamp of approval by all of the major leaders in the church at that time. And this text, it just wouldn't have made it through the canonization process if, if it had been spurious. I don't think that God uh, would have allowed this particular story, this text, to be included in Jerome's late 4th century translation of the Bible, the Vulgate. He translated the Bible into Latin. 
And that happened around the same time as this ecumenical meeting that canonized the Scripture. So uh, the Latin Vulgate is one of the oldest translations of Scripture. And it's in the Vulgate. I don't think God would have uh, allowed it to be included in other major language translations like Arabic, Coptic, Persian, Ethiopian versions of the Bible all early. Uh, if it was spurious, God would not have allowed it to be included in all of the English translations of the Bible. I haven't found one where it does not appear, including the very first English translation, the Wycliffe Bible of 1382. So uh, if it's spurious and, and not to be seen as Scripture, then how is it that it's made it through the test of time and through all of the ecumenical meetings and it's in all of our Bibles? Here's some additional facts. This passage contains no contradictions, no errors. And that was one of the measuring sticks during the canonization process. That things had, all the, the books of the, the New Testament in particular had to have cohesion and, and, and line up perfectly with one another and affirm each other. And, and this text does that. There's no contradictions, there's no errors. It accurately portrays Jesus and supports the rest of Scripture. Now keep in mind around this, a little bit later than the first century, there were alleged books of the Bible that were written even into the two, three, four hundreds that claimed to be biblical and they said a lot of things about Jesus. But they didn't represent Jesus accurately. They didn't line up with the rest of Scripture. You know, I think one time I told you one of them made Jesus look like Dennis the Menace. He pushed a kid off a roof so he'd die so he could resurrect him. I, that doesn't sound, I mean, I've read the Bible back to front many, many times, and that just, okay, I can't, <laughs> what? Where, is that, what, huh? So this particular text accurately represents the Lord Jesus, his temperament, his disposition, the way that he did ministry, the way that he spoke to people, his brilliance, it's all there. Another fact, this story communicates a extremely profound and helpful message to the saints. See, that's another measuring rod for Scripture. What you're looking at, is it helpful to the people of God? And some of those extra-biblical writings that claim to be biblical were not helpful in any way. They were confusing. This story, which I believe is absolute scripture, is, is totally helpful, totally edifying. And another reality is that it's in the Bible, and it has been since before the Bible was canonized, all the way back. Bottom line, there is no reason for Christians to doubt its origin Doubt its authenticity. It has the apostolic mark as far as I'm concerned, and every other decent scholar says so. It looks apostolic in origin. The apostles are the ones that pretty much wrote the New Testament. There's no reason for us to doubt its origin, authenticity, or veracity. It should be accepted. It should be believed. It should be honored. And it should be taught as God's Word. Now, the only issue... And you're like, oh no, he's going to contradict. No. The only issue I have with this story is where it is placed. It's the only issue I have with it. I'm not concerned about the writing style and how it doesn't sound perfectly like John. I think it does. And I don't agree with others on all of the things that they point out in it. But the one issue that I do have with it is where it is located right now in our Bibles. It does not seem to fit. The early manuscripts that actually include this story vary in its placement. Now, that's interesting, right? In other words, they, they, they don't all have it where it's placed right now. Some have it in Luke 21 after verse 38. That's an interesting place if you look over there. I don't see how it would fit there ever, but some have it in John chapter 21 after verse 25. By the way, that's the very last verse in John's gospel. And so somehow some of these early manuscripts had it after that, and it's almost like a side note. And by the way, here's something else Jesus did. 
Some have it at the beginning, at the very, very end of chapter 7, in the very beginning of chapter 8, right? Some have it there. Our English translations follow that pattern, and I'm not sure why. And then some have it in John chapter 7, placed right between verses 36 and 37. We left off at 36 last week. Some have it right there, after 36, right between 36 and 37. And in my opinion, that seems to be the most sensible place for it. So the early manuscripts that had it, some of them had it there. And this is one of the reasons why we're going to look at it today, because in my opinion, that's where it should be. In its current position, it disturbs the flow of the narrative. You know, we're looking at the Feast of Booths, which is contained in chapter 7 and 8. It disturbs that the flow of the Feast of Booths narrative. It creates confusion about when the Feast of Booths ended. But this problem is easily eliminated if we simply shift it back and place it between 36 and 37 of chapter 7, which is where some of the early manuscripts had it in the first place. Now, I don't know if a scribe, you know, took it and was supposed to put it, you know, keep it where it was, and he moved it. I have no idea what happened. I don't even know how it managed to, to get into the English translations in this way. It could very well be that it's precisely where God wants it so that he can make pastors and preachers' lives miserable as they're trying to figure out what to do with it. There was some serious sanctification happening this week as I'm going, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I don't know how it was moved from early manuscripts to where it is other than the fact that it, in some of the other early manuscripts, this is where it was. And it was also in Luke, which would change the author. And that's, that's a little different. But I don't know how it got to where it is. and It's here. But I think it's, it's okay for us to shift it back a little bit to where it was in some of the early manuscripts. I don't think it does violence to God's Word to do that. The one thing that I refuse to do is tamper with the text itself. That, I believe, is breaking the rules of Scripture. You know how it says, do not add to or subtract, right? And most of us think of Revelation. Right at the end of the book of the Revelation where it says, uh, it says, do not add to or subtract, you'll receive the curses of this book, 22 verse 18. Well, it also says, basically, God warns us at the beginning of the Bible, in the middle of the Bible, and at the end of the Bible, don't change my word. Don't add or subtract. Deuteronomy 4, 2 and Proverbs 30 verse 6. So I think it's okay to shift it back. I, I you know interacted with a couple of the elders. I didn't want to make a big deal about it, but I made, you know, talked to a couple elders about it, and they, they felt that it was fine to move it. It certainly seems to fit better with where it is or with where we're looking at it. So it's the next thing in the narrative for us. And uh, I don't want to talk about it too long because I want to get into the text. So let's, let's just do that. Let's pick it up at chapter 7, verse 53 and 8.1. Keeping in mind, we left off at verse 36 last week. Now we're looking at verse 53 and 8.1. I believe this is the next thing to happen. Notice the bars again. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so these verses right here, these two verses mark the end of Jesus' first visit or first day in the temple. Right, which actually occurred during the middle of the feast, if you look back at chapter 7, verse 14. Right, He goes, he, he's in seclusion, he's kind of in hiding, and then he emerges and comes out and he goes into the feast and he basically teaches all day long. This marks the end of that first day of teaching. So he spent that middle of the week, middle of the feast day teaching, and this signifies the end of it. Right after verse 36, bam, that day is closed. People are disbanding and leaving. After he finished teaching on that day, the religious leaders and, and people that were there, the Jewish people that were there, they went to their homes. That's what it says. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. 
He liked to camp out on the Mount of Olives. He didn't have a residency there. He liked to camp there. He liked to stay there on occasion with his disciples. The Mount of Olives featured groves of olive trees. Some of those trees, I don't know if the original ones that were there during Jesus' day are still there, but there's trees that have been dated out to 900 years that are there. They're crazy looking. They look like they belong in a haunted movie. You know, they're just all... But there's, still, there's some really, really old olive trees there. And in Jesus' day, those, this grove, these groves of olive trees provided excellent canopy and cover. And so you could actually camp under these trees. And that's what Jesus did. Everyone went to their houses, the religious leaders. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, which isn't very far. By the way, the Garden of Gethsemane. You've heard of that. That's where Jesus was betrayed and arrested. That is in the same place. It's on the Mount of Olives. So the first day of teaching concludes. Everyone disbands and goes away. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Now we get into verse 2 of chapter 8. It says, Early in the morning He came again to the temple, and the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. So this marks the beginning of Jesus' second day at the temple during the Feast of Booths. Okay, he came during the middle of the week. He taught all day that one day or half a day. He comes back the very next morning. When he arrived at the temple court where the rabbis preached their messages and discussed theology, people came to him. It says all. Okay, that's not everyone in the temple courts. That's not everyone in Jerusalem. Sometimes the word all doesn't mean all. It just means a lot. So the people that were present, most of the people that were present, in other words, a very large crowd moved from where they were to where Jesus had just showed up. And Jesus sat down, and that was customary for the rabbis, teachers, to sit. I don't know if he sat on a kind of bar stool thing or in a chair, but he sits down and he begins to teach the people. And all does not mean everyone, it just means a whole bunch a lot of people. Now look at three and three through five. We kind of move quickly at first here. It's just logistical stuff. This is where it gets heavy. Three through five says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? That's the ESV. As Jesus was teaching the people, all the people that were there, two groups of religious leaders came together, the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes being experts in the law, Pharisees being kind of the police, not like law enforcement, but the ones who enforced the law and the religion these two groups band together and they come in and they interrupt Jesus while he's teaching the people. And they had with them a woman who had just been caught in the act of adultery. Like just prior to this moment, these guys somehow grabbed this woman who was involved in this sexual immorality with some guy. Now we're not told what type of adultery she was involved in. We do know it's a sexual immorality. A sexual immorality is porneo in Greek, and it covers adultery and fornication, homosexuality, all the different kinds of forms of sexual immorality. We just don't know what type or style of adultery this is. The Word of God is very discreet, by the way. It's pastors like me that tend not to be very discreet. But the Word just says adultery, and you know what that means. We don't know if she was married in, in laying with a man or lying with a man who was not her husband. Uh, we don't know if she was single and laying with a married man, right? We, we don't know. It was one of those forms of it. And they brought the woman and placed her right in front of Jesus where he was seated so that everyone there could see her and hear them. I don't know about you, but I'm, not, I'm reasonably comfortable with confessing some sins before you as the congregation, but 
I don't think I'd be very happy if somebody drugged me or if I was a woman or anyone else into the middle of the mall and said, this person been committing sexual immorality. I'd be mortified. Horrified, would you? I mean, that, that'd be embarrassing. Remember, all the people are there. This must have been just horrible for her. They basically said, paraphrase, Teacher, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commands that she be executed through stoning, you know, throwing rocks at her until she's not breathing. Now, I've had a dirt clod fight or two. Can you imagine how many of those it would take to actually extinguish a life? A ton. Now, I don't think they were throwing dirt clods. But the law of Moses commands that she be executed through stoning. You keep hurling rocks until she's not breathing. And they say, what do you think should happen? Now, several questions come to mind here. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm reading this stuff, my mind is just going bananas. I'm just trying to figure this out. Number one, how did these men catch her in the act of adultery? Were they watching through a doorway, through a window? Like a bunch of peeping Toms? No offense to my brother-in-law. Or to that Tom over there. I just screwed up. There's Toms everywhere. <laughs> you, you've heard of a peeping Tom, somebody who looks through a window, right? Or what, I mean, were these guys a bunch of weird, perverted peeping Toms that are looking through a window, looking through a doorway. What the heck is going on here? How do you catch somebody in the act of adultery? You got to go in when something's happening. These are religious leaders. What are they doing near a place of, where adultery is taking place? You get the sense that they're out looking for it. They're looking for things among the people. Now, the Feast of Booths, we do have to factor this in. The Feast of Booths was, was still going, which means that most of the people were actually sleeping in tents all over the city, right? So I think witnessing adultery and catching somebody in the act would be a lot easier if people are going in and out of tents, especially when you know, you know, I hope there's nobody named Fred here. Fred's tent's over there. He's married, and Lucinda goes into the tent, and you're like, well, that's not good. I mean, maybe that's what they saw, Lucinda. I don't know where these names come from. I hope nobody's named that. But think about that. If there's tents everywhere and everyone's sleeping outside in these little makeshift tents, it would be easier to witness and see that. Well, that woman right there doesn't belong in that tent. I know that guy. He's got a wife and 19 kids. It could be that they saw her enter the tent of a guy that, that didn't belong to her. We don't know how they were able to catch her in the act of adultery, but it's icky. That's my first question. How did they catch her in it? And it's better that we really don't know. Number two, why did they bring the woman only? Obviously, there was a guy involved. Anyone stop to ask to think that? You know, they drag her through town and put her in the spotlight. Where's the guy at? That was close. (laughs) He ran? Yeah, maybe. Where was the man? Why didn't they bring the man? Wasn't he also guilty of this crime? To me, this seems incredibly unfair and unjust. He's not there. And he's very likely just going to keep doing this stuff because he's not being called out. How do they catch her? Where's the dude at? Number three, what does the law of Moses actually say about adultery? Because that's what they're saying, right? Hey, we're supposed to kill her. We're supposed to execute her. Well, two passages come to mind. Leviticus 20.10, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Well, that's pretty clear. Deuteronomy 22.22, If a man is caught lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. You shall purge this evil from Israel. 
Notice how these passages both first mention the man. Again, where is the man? It's not that the woman gets away with this. According to the way the law is written, the first person to be addressed in this kind of scenario, the first person to be held accountable for adultery is the man. Because man is a symbol of God's authority and headship on earth. And there are other reasons, but the first person mentioned in the law is the guy. And when I read that, I, it just increases the, the level of seriousness that it is for us guys, that we are to live right and to walk in purity as best we can and do the right thing and stay the heck away from this stuff. And, you know, we, we look to Genesis 3 and we see Eve eat the fruit first. and all. I, I, I'm a firm believer that if Adam hadn't failed in his leadership, she wouldn't have got to the tree. Men are firstly held responsible, and he's not here. And that makes me mad. Why didn't the religious leaders bring him? According to the law, he should have been brought to Jesus too and addressed firstly. And we also see the punishment there, don't we? It is death for both, both the man and the woman. Number four, why did the religious leaders bring the woman to Jesus in the first place? Their law was clear. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't need His opinion. They didn't need His authorization. They didn't need His approval. They didn't need His insights. The law says what it says. They didn't, it didn't have anything to do with Jesus. They didn't need him to give a ruling on the matter. The law is clear. Carry out what the law says. And yet they bring her alone, no man, her alone to Jesus. Why do you come to Jesus on this matter? Quite frankly, it doesn't have anything to do with him. Well, the answer is in the next verse. Look at verse 6. They said this, or this they said to what? Test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And look at how Jesus responds. Bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So the religious the reason why the religious leaders brought the adulterous woman to Jesus in the first place is because they were seeking to test Him. If Jesus replied that the woman should not be stoned to death, and this is the test, right? If He says, no, she shouldn't be stoned to death, she shouldn't be executed, what would the religious leaders have done? They would have denounced Him as a lawbreaker. He doesn't even follow the law of Moses. This woman was clearly caught in this act. She's to be put to death. And Jesus is unwilling to fulfill the law, which means He's a lawbreaker. He's against the law, which means He can't be our Messiah. They'd have told people that far and wide, look everyone, according to our law, this woman deserves to die, but Jesus has rendered a different verdict. He's against the law of Moses. Can't possibly be our Messiah. You see how they were trying to trick Him, right? If Jesus replied that the woman should, uh, also if, the, if Jesus agreed with them and said, go ahead, you know, let's, let's kill her, go ahead, she should be stoned to death right there. You know what the religious leaders would have done to? Not only would they have, uh, they would have actually been excited about that, but they would have turned around. If Jesus said, go ahead and kill her, they would have been excited about that, but they would have went and told the Romans what Jesus had just done, because guess what? You had to have Roman approval before you could commit an execution. So if Jesus disagreed, they'd have got him on breaking the law. If he'd agreed, they'd have got him on breaking Roman law. Rome had in place a, a stipulation that the Jews could not carry out an execution without their approval. This is why Jesus was brought before Pilate. Have you ever asked that? They were trying to capture and kill him the whole time, but they wouldn't have actually killed Jesus without first taking him to the Romans because what? They would have broke Roman law. And that's the last thing you want to do. Now, if Jesus had agreed, they would have 
tried to get him busted with the Romans, but they would have also spread rumors about his alleged inconsistency. You know, right? Because Jesus, you know, Jesus claims to offer salvation to tax collectors and and prostitutes and and harlots, right? We we see Jesus reaching and ministering to people like that, and the religious leaders were always criticizing him for it. But if he had said, go ahead and execute her, boy, they would have said, look, he's not compassionate like he said. Obviously, he hasn't come to, to save people like her because, look, he authorized her death for one measly transgression, adultery. whoop de doo Jesus isn't consistent. So if he'd have said, don't do it, he'd have broke the Mosaic law to them and they would have tattled on him that way. If he'd have said, go ahead and do it, they'd have tried to get him nailed with the Romans and they would have also besmirched him and spread slanderous rumors about how he didn't actually come to rescue and save harlots and prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors, right? You see how, what they're trying to do here? This is what they're trying to do. Augustine put it like this, the scribes and Pharisees And this is interesting, too, that Augustine comments on this. He was around in the 300s into the early 400s, which means that he was reading this and giving commentary on this story. It's not in the Bible. Augustine was around back in the early days, and he gave commentary on this passage. And he said this, The scribes and Pharisees said in themselves, Let us put before Jesus a woman caught in adultery. Let us ask what is ordered in the law concerning her. If he shall say stone her, he will not have the repute of gentleness. If he gives sentence to let her go, he will not keep righteousness. Right? If you you go through with the execution, he's not gentle, compassionate, gracious, merciful. If he lets her go, then he's not keeping in the law, keeping with the law. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation for Jesus. The trap was set. In my mind at first, it seemed like a pretty good trap, but then I suddenly realized who these men were dealing with. If you poke a bear and keep poking it, it might turn around and devour you. But they weren't poking a bear. They were poking the Lion of Judah. Fools. And they they just... (sighs) Before we move to the next verse and see how Jesus actually responds to them, I want you to notice again what happened in the second half of verse 6. Before he gives a response, well, his first response isn't verbal. He just bends down and begins to write on the ground. Now, what, what is he doing? He knew they were trying to test him. Some call it a stall tactic. Well, that implies that Jesus didn't know what he was doing. He was trying to figure it out. That doesn't sound like my Jesus. It just seems a bit bizarre that he kind of bends down, gets, you know, gets out of the chair and bends down. He starts writing on the ground. It's almost like something that children do, you know, with the chalk on the sidewalks. Some say he was stalling while he was trying to figure out what to say. That's dumb because Jesus always knew what to say. He's omniscient, all-knowing. Some say that he was making them wait for an answer in an effort to expose their lack of importance. (laughs) Kind of like that one. It was his way of saying, talk to the hand. Somebody said something like, okay, this is what he meant. You don't command me. I'll give you an answer when I'm ready. You can stand there and wait. Some say that's what he meant. Maybe. Others focus more on the fact that he was actually just riding on the ground, and they're trying to figure out. Others are like, well, we don't know if it's a stall tact or whatever. We want to know what he wrote. They ask, what did he write? Well, the text doesn't say, does it? I think he wrote, I'm going to save Phil Baker in 2,000 years. (laughs) I don't know what he wrote. We don't know what he wrote, but I'll tell you, there's no shortage of speculation. Some say he wrote the texts of Scripture, which settled the question before him, like the passages I mentioned, right? The passages that actually talk about how you're supposed to respond to an adulterous person. Maybe he wrote the seventh commandment, right, which 
plainly says what? Thou shall not commit adultery. He could have very well wrote that out. Like, you know the answer. He scribes it out, you know, scribbles it out on the ground. Some say that Jesus listed the sins of her accusers, the sins of the religious leaders. If I'd have been there, I'd have been like, hey, Jesus, look. You ready to give an answer? Can you imagine if he's actually writing out, I don't think there was enough ground. He'd been scribbling all day, you know what I mean? But some say that he was, his response was to scribble out their sins. And were they not sinful? They'd been trying to kill him. This whole situation was sinful for them. I don't know if, if, if that's true. Could be. Lastly, some say that Jesus did not mean anything at all by writing on the ground. That he, it only, or that he only uh, signified by doing this that he would give no answer and would neither listen to nor interfere in such matters as the one brought before him. So they say that you know, him bending down and writing on the ground was his way of kind of ignoring them. And, and you might think, well, that doesn't seem feasible. It seems like the most accurate idea to me. It makes the most sense to me, that view does, because of what Jesus said in passages like 3.17 of John and 12.47 of John. I did not come to condemn the world, and I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. In other words, I didn't come to judge these matters. I came to save. I did not come to, to judge these little things and these things that are happening in matters of the Mosaic law. You know, Jesus did not come to establish a people's court and play Judge Wapner and render rulings. He didn't do that. He came not to judge us, but to save us. From what? Judgment. You see, God has already rendered a judgment against the world. It's guilty. It's a world filled with sinners and every unimaginable transgression and the world's already been judged stands condemned so jesus did not come to judge the world he came to save the world through his own person and work and so i think that that answer makes the most sense you're trying to get me to try a case for you the law says what it says i came to do otherwise. I'm not Judge Judy or anyone else. I don't think Jesus was, was interested in rendering a verdict because that's not why He came. But I think the reason why He spoke up in the next verse is because the religious leaders kept pushing Him. Here's where they keep poking the bear. Right? He's knelt down doing His thing and they just kept poking and saying, come on, come on, come on. And this was a huge mistake. Look at 7 and 8. And as they continued, right, perpetual there, we get the idea, as they continued to ask him, like, hey, 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 Jesus, pay attention. Uh, it's not playtime. You know? Hey, give us an answer. As they continue to ask him, he stands up. And he said to them, now listen to his words. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. <laughs> he stands up, gives a short, quick answer, and then returns to writing on the ground. I like how it says he stood up and spoke. He didn't just, you know, kind of look up at them or whatever. He stood up and spoke. And I'll tell you, he displayed incredible wisdom and knowledge here. You know, they tried to trap him in a similar way when it came to paying taxes. You remember that story? Right? Should we pay, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? You know, Caesar was the enemy and Jesus says, give me a coin. They hand him a coin. He says, whose face is this on the coin? That's the face of Caesar. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. 
and give to God what belongs to him. He gave them the most spectacular answer in that moment, and he did the exact same thing here. But this text shouldn't be in Scripture, and it doesn't sound like Jesus. It sounds exactly like Jesus. I've, I've never even, this, this wisdom and this brilliance and his wit, how he could come back with something like this that literally flips it on their heads. That's Jesus. And what did Jesus actually say here? What did he do? He basically reminded the religious leaders of what their law actually says. He didn't create anything new here. He just gave them the rest of what that law talks about and what it means. Now listen, those who discover a person in the act of adultery or if they find out someone was involved in adultery, those who discover an adulterous person must also carry out the execution. Deuteronomy 13.9, Deuteronomy 17.17. 17. It's not a matter of taking that person to someone else. It's a matter of you are judge, jury, executioner in that moment. Was that what they were doing? No. He's telling them, do you not understand what your law says? And he reiterates it through this statement. And here's the trick. Here is the key to understanding this text rightly. First, what I just said, those who catch the person or find out about the person are the ones to be the executioners. And the second thing, equally important, only those, if those who caught them, those among those who caught the person or whatever, only those who were not guilty of the same sin could participate in the execution. In other words, if a bunch of adulterers catch an adulterer, eh, you can't execute the person, you're going to get executed next. Well, I, let's just forget about the matter. Should have never even went by that dumb tent. <laughs> you, you can't be guilty of the same sin and then be part of the execution squad. That's what the law says. Only those who were not guilty could participate in the execution. Jesus basically says, according to the law, it's your job to stone her to death. But make sure you aren't guilty of the same sin before you do it. That's the right way to read this verse. But people fail to misunderstand it all the time. In fact, I did for a number of years. Most people think Jesus said something like this, since you're all sinners, which of you can legitimately carry out the execution? Is that the way that you used to interpret this verse? That's the way most people interpret it. You know what I'm saying? Like Jesus just looked at him and said, you all want to just take her out, but you're all just a bunch of dirty sinners too. You can't do it. Who, who, who of you is innocent to be able to do this? That's how people interpret this verse. That's the wrong way to interpret it. You know Why? It sets up a huge problem. Now no one can carry out an execution or no judge, no one, no one, no one because no one's without sin. Jesus was not saying those of you who do not have sin as if there were some people in there who had never sinned. It's not at all even remotely close to what he meant. There are no people that are without sin. He was not looking for somebody who wasn't a sinner here. He knew that they were all sinners and everyone's a sinner. If being a sinner disqualifies a person from carrying out punishment, then no one would be able to legitimately serve in that capacity because no one is without sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he couldn't have possibly meant anything remotely close to there's got to be somebody here who's never sinned. You're the one that can carry it out. That's just foolish to even think that he implied anything like that. He was not referring to sin or sinners in general. He was referring to a specific sin, adultery, and specific sinners, those who were equally guilty of adultery. Yes, the law says execute her, and you're the ones to do it, and make sure you're not guilty of the same thing. Then you can proceed. 
This is the right way to interpret the verse. That's the meaning. Notice again in verse 8 there how Jesus bent down and began to write on the ground again. I think at this point this is just getting annoying to those around him. It's almost like Jesus comes across as being aloof. He's not aloof. Bent down because he didn't want to try the case. He didn't come to do that. They pressed him and pressed him and pressed him. He gave him an answer. Then he resumed doing what he was doing. Yeah, you're not important. And what you're doing right now is not important. And I think he was giving the religious leaders a little time here to put together a response. You know, I'll, you guys figure out what I just said. Right? And they're probably going, oh my gosh. I told you this was a stupid idea. <laughs> Notice what it says in verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Wow. The religious leaders did not say a word. Instead, they turned and walked away. Why did they turn and walk away? Were they all guilty of adultery? Yes! They were guilty of adultery in either thought or deed. During a previous sermon, Jesus gave the full meaning of the seventh commandment, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. He gave the, the full meaning of it, right? He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. Every religious leader present was guilty of adultery because all men experience lustful thoughts. Bare minimum here. I don't think that, that they were all just guilty because of their thought patterns. I think some there were guilty of committing the physical act. No, they couldn't have been. They're religious leaders. This is a false religion. and false, It's idolatry. I think some of them were guilty of the physical act. Physical adultery, that sexual immorality was rampant in the first century in this region in that day. Maybe you didn't know that. Just everywhere. The Romans were known for engaging in all sorts of debauchery and forms of sexual immorality, including wife swapping. Well, there's adultery. This whole idea of wife swapping is not a recent invention. In fact, back in the old days, the Jews said, we can't really do this. We commit adultery. Let's just, we'll, we'll get into polygamy. That way we're married to them and we can keep doing this stuff. God never authorized polygamy. Adam was one man and Eve was one woman. So that's one way you deal with adultery. When you're sleeping with a bunch of women, you just marry them. You pull a David Koresh. Now, wife swapping was big during this time. Adultery was huge. On three separate occasions, Jesus called the crowds an adulterous and sinful generation. Matthew 16, 4, Matthew 12, 39, Mark 8, 38. In Luke chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus called the Jews, His own people, a perverted generation. And when we hear adulterous generation and perverted generation, we tend to narrow that down to spiritual things like spiritual adultery, like, like the Jewish people and those Jesus preached to, they were committing adultery against God because they'd given themselves over to false gods. It was a spiritual kind of thing. No, that's not all that he was referring to there. It wasn't just spiritual adultery. It was physical adultery. It was happening everywhere. He saw spiritual adultery, the people cheating on their God with false gods and idols and false religion. He saw that, but he also saw physical adultery and he called people out. Is Jesus not seeing in this very moment a case of physical adultery right in front of him? A Jewish woman who's been sleeping with someone who isn't her husband. Is that not what he's seeing? You see, he saw it. It was there. It was happening all the time. That woman standing there, guilty of that very act. And I believe every one of those men, those religious leaders, were guilty of it 
in thought, and some were guilty in deed. They had done it. How many religious leaders were there and now leaving? We don't know, right? Doesn't say. You kind of get the sense that there's a whole lot of them. I don't think there was. I think it was a handful. I think there was a handful of these scribes and Pharisees that came together and grabbed this woman and brought her there. Why did the oldest ones leave first? You notice that detail. J.C. Ryle wrote, because the oldest ones would probably have the greatest number of sins on their minds. <laughs> You've lived long enough, you're like, dang, I'm a sinner. Young person, I'm kind of a sinner. Middle person, yeah, I'm a sinner. Older person, I'm one heck of a sinner. You get that wisdom, right? The older ones were like, I'm done. I'm getting out of here. I'm getting the heck out of here. You know? I don't know if they were that old. The older ones were like, oh, whoa. They just got out of there. We don't know how many were there, but we know the oldest ones left first. And then the next and the next and the next. And only Jesus and the woman remained. But I do believe the crowd was still there. There was no reason for the crowd to leave. The crowd was still present. Now look at 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus basically stands up and asks the woman, the adulterous woman, a question paraphrased, Where are your accusers? Who is condemning you now? Look at her response and Jesus' final words to her. Look at 11. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. End of section. See the double bars. She simply replies, No one is condemning me now. But I want you to notice how she called Jesus Lord. Lord is Kyrios in Greek. The Hebrew equivalent is Adonai. Usually when we think of the Lord and uh, the, we think of the name Lord in the Old Testament, the translation or the equivalent would be Yahweh. Uh, Kyrios in Greek and Adonai in Hebrew, they both, and the word Lord there, they, they all refer to God's rule and authority. What was she doing? She was basically calling Jesus her master. Her master. These are not the words of an unbeliever. Unbelievers do not call Jesus Lord, nor do they submit to Him as Master. I believe this woman was saved right here in this moment. But Jesus wasn't finished with her. He wanted to give her assurance and make sure that she understood her high calling as a new believer. He said, neither do I condemn you. What was this? This was His way of saying, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I don't condemn you for what you did. I forgive your sin. And look what he says next. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is repentance. Turn from your life, your, your old way. Now I want you to know, Jesus did not set her up for failure. He knew she would sin again. He wasn't saying, now go be perfect. Don't ever sin again. You've confessed your sin. Now you can't sin anymore. Jesus knew a better rendering of the end of verse 11 would be, go and leave your life of sin. That's what it means. Go and leave your life of sin. I like how uh, Gerald Borchert put it. Jesus' verdict was not rendered as a simple acquittal or non-condemnation. The verdict was, in fact, a strict charge for her to live from this point on a, uh, to live from this point on very differently. The liberating work of Jesus did not mean the excusing of sin. Encountering Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life, the turning away from sin. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start life anew. The forgiveness Jesus graciously bestowed upon the adulterous woman did come at a very, very high cost. Cost Jesus his life on the cross at Calvary. But listen, it also cost 
this woman, her life of sin. You see, she'd have to live differently. And she would actually want to live differently. Because she has the Holy Spirit, or she will. And I'll tell you, Jesus demands the same thing from those who desire to follow Him and from those who are following Him. Every potential and every existing disciple is called to leave their life of sin, walk in repentance, and live for Christ. And that's what He's telling her. Closing. This amazing passage of Scripture focuses on four people, the crowd or the people, the religious leaders, the adulterous woman, and Jesus. Who are you most like? Are you most like the crowd, the people? They were being taught by Jesus, and then they became spectators, just standing there doing nothing. I'm not sure they were supposed to do anything more than just stand there, so I'm not trying to blame them, but there's a principal truth hidden here or buried in this. They were being taught, and then they were inactive and just kind of standing there doing nothing. God has, has called us, His people, to, to do more than simply attend worship services and hear sermons. He wants us to, to put what we are learning to good use. He wants us to live out the truth and, and bring Him glory. He wants us to make disciples beginning in our own homes and going out from there. That's the principle that I draw from their inactivity, from their teaching, getting sermons, and then inactivity. And, and how many of us are guilty of this? We just come to church all the time, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm glad you're here, and you hear all these messages, and you love the truth, and I just love that sermon and all that, but then is it, is it becoming who you are, and are you living it out? Because we're not to be just hearers. We're to be doers. So watch that. Be careful. You most like the crowd, the people, being taught all the time, but then inactive. Are you most like the religious leaders? They were judgmental finger pointers who were looking for opportunities to expose, criticize, humiliate, and or even condemn others for their sins. You a finger pointer? Always focused on what everyone else is doing and somebody calls you out and you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about, I know English. I don't sin, but I'm good at pointing out everyone else's. That's the Pharisees, that's the scribes. You know what? They were also hypocrites, weren't they? Some of them were guilty of the, all the men were guilty, in their, at least in their minds, but some of them were guilty of the physical act. And here they are trying to drag somebody out and get them busted for something that they themselves were guilty of. That is hypocrisy, and that is the very thing that I think Jesus despised most. And it's, it, Go read Matthew 23 when he addresses these very guys later on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because they were really, really good at pointing out others' sins and never owning their own. They were hypocrites. Are you most like the adulterous woman? She either cheated on her husband or cheated with someone else's husband. Either way, she was guilty of a grievous sin, punishable by death. If you have ever lusted in your heart after someone, if you have ever been unfaithful in your marriage, if you have ever cherished something or someone above God, you're an adulterer. You see, the religious leaders figured they just have to, if they went and committed the physical act, then they're adulterers. But they didn't understand that if they have lustful thoughts in their hearts or if they give themselves over to idols, they couldn't make the connection there. You don't have to go sleep with someone who isn't your wife to commit adultery, although some people do that. You can have lustful thoughts. You can cheat on God with idols or money or whatever it is that you're chasing. The good news is the adulterous woman found salvation and forgiveness in Jesus, and so can you. Trust Him as your Lord and Savior. Leave your life of sin, which really means fight sin. Kill sin before it kills you. Fight it every day. 
Fight the temptations. Turn from it on a daily basis. Are you like her? Are you most like Jesus? Merciful, kind, forgiving. Toward who? An adulteress. He also spoke the truth in love, didn't he? He told her not what she wanted to hear, but what she needed to hear. Go and leave your life of sin. Are you merciful, kind, and forgiving toward other sinners? You're a sinner. Are you merciful, kind, and forgiving toward other sinners? Do you speak the truth in love? If so, you're being like Jesus. Well done. Keep being like Him. Who are you most like? 